go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that as Peter has told us already, there are some passages that are easy to understand and there are some that are quite difficult. We ask that you would give illumination to this passage. That by the work of your spirit, we might see, we might understand, that we might believe, and that we might grow. Not simply because it is good for us, but because it brings glory to your name. Look at the people that you have saved and look at how you transform them. May it be true for us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, new church, there's going to be a shelf right there. Because I always feel bad putting it on the communion table. All right, so I mentioned already that we had the men's retreat this weekend, which was great fun. We went down to Bethel Woods and had a great time together until, yes, it happens, Ryan brings these little gems out. (laughs) And in case you have not yet figured out, if Ryan offers you something, or if I offer you something... (laughs) Don't eat it, right? Uh, spoil my trick. It's, if I'm giving it to you nine times out of ten, it's terrible. And the other time out of ten, I tried to make something good, and it's still terrible, so don't eat it either way. But Ryan brings these little gems out. They are from Southeast Asia somewhere. Uh, durian fruit candy, which uh, for those of yeah, you know what that is, you are like, oh, man. Uh, these little gems are, are just vile. They're little candies of just nastiness. And they're terrible. So, of course, we get them, and they're wonderful to eat. And we share them around, and everybody starts eating them. And we're trying to play a game, and they're so bad that I just can't focus. Case of fact, actually, you didn't know this, but Sam had one during Sunday school right there. And I could smell it sitting where Maria is. They're terrible. But the fun part about it was watching everybody try to describe What's so bad about them? I mean, trying to put words to like how nasty this little piece of candy is. Jeff's description was, it's like asparagus and banana that have been left out to rot. And you're like, you know, I I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. It's terrible. There's something fruity to it. It's something rotten to it. It's absolutely disgusting. But the, the, the joy was listening to us try to find words to describe the unpleasant experience. And the, the beauty was none of us really could do that good of a job. The best we had was that was asparagus and banana that have kind of like, you know, been left out to rot. And you, you get an idea, but even then you're like, I, I still don't appreciate how bad it is. And in that moment, you get to see a little bit of the strength and weakness of language. God has made us so that we can genuinely communicate. Jeff can say, look, it's rotten banana mixed with asparagus and maybe some cauliflower or something else nasty in there that only you healthy people eat. It's disgusting. (laughs) And we can kind of go, okay, I have a, a sense of what that is. Language accomplishes something but it has its limits. Right? You can hear that and you can kind of chuckle and giggle and think it's funny. And Ryan may be kind enough to share with one of these with you later. And you might dry heave like I did. And you go, wow, it, it, it's so much worse than what I thought. 
In Joel chapter 2, we have the prophet attempting to do a similar type of moment. Only what he's experienced is not durian fruit candy. What he has experienced is the judgment of God. And this is bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. This, this is nasty. What Joel has experienced is far worse. I mean, it's, it's, it's much, much worse. And so he goes to try to relate what he has seen to the people of God. And you know what? If I can't explain this piece of candy, how on earth is he supposed to explain the wrath of God? So he does a couple of things. First, he builds on what's been happening in the nation already. If you've remembered the last couple of weeks, which you should, uh, they've had a major problem with locusts. It's been a massive invasion. And for those of us that live here and don't think about locusts very often, that's uh, problematic in so many ways. It just, they destroy everything. They're, uh, at their uh, end of their life cycle, they're actually big enough and just hateful enough that they can eat the bark off the trees to strip them down to the, like, the underwood, which is terrible. And it can take years for the crops to recover. I mean, you think about in the fall here when uh, you open the windows in the fall and you have the roaring of the cicadas or the grasshoppers in the background. And that's just a couple of thousand of those creatures. Can you imagine having millions of them? I mean, you can't sleep. You can't think. There's nothing to eat. You can't focus. It's all consuming. And Joel has been walking the nation through this great catastrophe. And now in chapter 2, he tips his hand for his primary point and says, Look, this is what the nation's going through, and it's bad. We're not going to minimize the bad of what's happening. We're not going to marginalize the impact of the locust." We're not going to act like it's not problematic when your children starve to death in front of you. We're not going to ignore that fact. We are, however, going to use every ounce of pain that you've been given in connection with the locust to try to teach you something bigger. Because pain is one of those great gifts that are, is a gift from God to teach us lessons. And Joel is saying, look, we've been given a national gift, pain. But that's not the end. That wasn't, that wasn't the goal. The end was to show us something much bigger and something much worse. Really worse than famine. Worse than uh, loss of all national wealth in the space of just a matter of days. Worse than your children starving to death in front of you. Really, there's worse than that. Yeah. And so Joel takes this idea of the locust and mixes metaphors and takes the idea of an army and rolls them into one kind of disturbing portrait in chapter 2 to try to explain to us the purpose of pain. In this case, the national pain, the purpose of suffering in such a way, the purpose of the locust. 
Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound alarm on my holy mountain. Everybody wake up, listen. That's what he's saying. I got you on that one. (laughs) Everybody wake up, listen. Let all of the, the inhabitants of the land, let everybody that's in Israel, let all of God's people pay attention. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it's actually near. It's, it's now. It's happening. And I mentioned this last week, but as Gentiles, most of us in here, uh, day of the Lord doesn't catch our ear instantly. But for them, it would have been a national buzzword. Any Jew, when they hear that clause, day of the Lord, it's going to catch their ear. They're, they're, they're going to pay attention to it. They're going to perk up. They, they can't ignore that. It's a loaded term. It would be like if somebody just casually dropped 9-11 in a conversation. You, you, you don't ignore 9-11. Like that's, that's part of who we are. Or, you know, in early American days, remember the Alamo when you're playing a board game. Well, it's kind of inappropriate, my friend. That's a, that's a national phrase that would have very great meaning. It would have uh, a, a huge identity connected to it. It would have a, well, for us nationally, a theology. Here for them, it has a biblical theology. The day of the Lord is the day that God comes to creation. It's the day he comes into creation, and that's a really big deal. Because you think about for the Jews, you remember, he made it from outside of creation. Genesis 1 starts and it explains to us how God spoke and things happened. He didn't do art the way that I have to do art, which is badly. (laughs) But when I have to do art, I have to step inside the project. If I'm going to draw something, I'm left-handed, guess what? I will be wearing part of my artistry on my hand. If I have to paint, you'll know because it'll be on my face or on my clothes. Or When we do things like that, we're, we're in the midst of it. God speaks and it happens by the word of his power. And then from that creation, he takes dirt and forms a man and takes a rib and forms a woman. And it's fantastic for a little bit. Until the woman makes a tragic decision, which is bad. But then the man makes a much worse decision. And that's not just bad. It is altering to all of creation. And our translations have done us a bit of an injustice where it says Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the day when the Lord came to visit them. That's not really, it's more of the idea of he comes to them in the rush of the wind, which is what most of your English translations take as cool of the day. The other idea is that the Lord makes a noise when he shows up. That as the glory cloud of God comes into creation to judge them, it's all of the rushing of all of creation kind of rending around him as God steps in to judge the people. And it makes great sense that what Adam and Eve do, yeah, I'm not going to be here right now. I'm going somewhere else. And they go hide because terror is descending into creation. And then as the Old Testament develops and the theology of the Old Testament builds, an idea is introduced of the day of the Lord, which is reminiscent to that day. The day where God stepped into creation to destroy what he had made. 
In that day, Genesis 3, he steps inside and he curses, and he curses everything. He curses the serpent, he curses the woman, and thereby childbearing and marriage, and he curses the man, and thereby work, and the land itself, and all of creation itself. And in that day, death enters in, sin enters in, misery enters in. Now, we're not just opposed to each other, we're opposed to God, and we're opposed to creation itself. So that when you go to work, your work fights you. Why do you think you come home exhausted after a nine-hour day and go, wow, I got three hours worth of work done? Because God's fighting you in your job. He's got a curse out upon it. It's miserable hard now. Why is childbirth and child rearing brutal even on the good days? Because there's a curse out on it. And so from the workings out of the Old Testament, we have this idea introduced, the day of the Lord, where God again enters into creation. And it's reminiscent of that destruction that began originally. It's reminiscent of that curse that began originally. It's, oh no, this is the day where time ends. This is the day where creation is uncreated. You see, this is the idea that so much of the disciples cling to through the ministry of Jesus and why they're so baffled at who he is. Um, Jesus, when are you going to kill Rome? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? When is the day where you destroy everything bad? When is that day? When is the day of the Lord? When, it, when is it happening? And they're, they're confused because they don't know what it looks like. Largely because they've misunderstood Joel chapter 2 and other places. The day of the Lord is coming. The day where God steps into creation to resolve it. It's near. We're going to see there's a a whole bunch of features that Joel lists out. Now, Joel here is functioning as an artist. You see it's set in poetry form in your English Bible. There's a reason. He's not trying to give us a set of propositional statements. A, B, A plus B equals C, A plus B plus C equals D. He's not trying to build that as much as he's trying to give us an artistic impression It's like walking through uh, the Monet section in a museum. It's supposed to make you feel something. The first thing shows up in verse 2. All right, day of the Lord is coming. Woohoo, yay, God's going to be here. (laughs) A day of darkness, whoa, and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Even the introduction here is like, for really American Christians, a bit of like a, what, what, I'm, uh, huh? I'm, I'm, I'm confused for a moment. We speak always of God as light. And we speak always of Christianity as good, and both of those things are true, be clear. But we've neglected to understand the totality of the person of who God is. We forget so much of his character. 
Do you realize that God is wrath all of the time? Now, he, remember, he never changes. Like me, I change. Most of the time I'm happy, but there are times where I get wrathful. Thankfully, it's only some of the time, and it's put on and it's put off. Hopefully, that wrath is connected to righteous things. God is wrath all of the time. And peace all of the time. And joy all of the time. And love all of the time. But he doesn't put it on and take it off like moods because he is outside of time. I put on and take off responses and moods because I'm reacting to things. I'm hungry, I get cantankerous. You know, if it's your birthday, you get happy. Woo, yeah, well, maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you get a little depressed. Sorry, bad illustration. I'll fix that next time. But God doesn't change. He's, he's not inside the timeline, so he doesn't have things to react to because he has them all in front of him at the same time. So for us, we have like, yay, you know, somebody's getting married. We get excited for them because, yay, they're getting married and then they're going to have a baby. And yay, we get excited because we're reacting to moments in time. He's outside of time, so he's not reacting. He's the same thing always, all of the time. And we in the Western church have reduced him to only what we think are the positive attributes. We've reduced him to, he's love all of the time. And that is absolutely true. Do not hear anything other than that. One of the big points of 1 John, he is love all the time. He is love. And we talked about in 2 Peter, chapter 3 that we read, he is patience all of the time. But one of the things that the minor prophets teach us in Joel is that he's wrath all of the time. Now it's righteous wrath, It's not wrath over silly and stupid things like we have most of the time. It's not wrath because they're being petty or because somebody stepped on my toe and I'm going to have a hissy fit or they cut me off in traffic. It's perfect, unadulterated for the righteous reasons and in the righteous amount of response, wrath. And it's interesting when his day shows up as Joel describes it, it's a day of terror. Sean mentioned in Sunday school, we live at the peak of human technological development. And I would still contend with all of the science that we have and all of the technology that we have and as well as we understand the world, that if we got up tomorrow and we went to work and at 10.30 in the morning, the entire world went black. It would mess us up in the head. And that's what he's describing in verse 2. A day where the world goes dark. A day where the world is filled with gloom. A day where clouds descend and the darkness becomes oppressive. Oh yeah, by the way, you think the locusts were bad? Now we see what destruction actually looks like. And he picks up his metaphor. Second thing that we're going to see, he picks up his metaphors now of the locust and an army and kind of smushes them together to kind of convey how bad it is. 
Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen, uh, has never been before, and now will be again throughout the generations after them. So it's like when you look at the hills, the army that is approaching has so many things, so many soldiers that it, the hills look black. If you've ever seen um, fire ants here in the middle of a flood, um, some of you know this, some of you don't. Fire ants don't drown because the entire clan uh, gets to the top of the surface and then they form a ball. And then as they float, the ones on the bottom hold their breath until the ones on the top can turn the ball so the entire clan stays alive. I found that out the hard way. The way I learned that was uh, actually going in Lake Olmstead in Augusta looking for a disc when I stepped on one. And the entire clan hit the water. And I remember looking down thinking, why is the water black? And then I realized the water's alive because it's ants everywhere. And then I really did not enjoy my existence for the next several moments. But it's the same kind of concept. You look at the mountains, and the mountains are a different color. Why? Because they're alive. There's so many creatures on them. The army that's coming is so great, you can't see the trees, the grass, the leaves. They don't look normal colored anymore because destruction is coming. The army is so great. And this army that comes in, uh, is coming in destruction... They consume everything they touch. Oh, yeah, by the way, the locusts ate everything. This army does much worse. Verse 3, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land's like the Garden of Eden before them, a desolate waste uh, behind them. You think Sherman was bad, for those of you in the deep south. For those of you that didn't grow up in the south, Sherman was bad. The same illustration here, this army advances, and when they advance, it's really interesting. Where does the fire go? Before and behind them. It gives you an idea of how bad this army is, because pretty much, I mean, I'm not a brilliant military strategist. I displayed that at the men's retreat playing a game. Um, Not a brilliant military strategist, but I'm pretty sure lighting the ground on fire in front of you and behind you is a terrible military strategy unless you are more powerful than fire itself. I mean, for us, if our soldiers were to light the ground on front and behind them, well, that's kind of problematic because, I'm, best I understand, there's really nowhere to go after that. These soldiers control fire. They're bigger than fire. They're greater than fire. And so they just burn everything. Looks great in front of them, desolate wilderness behind them. Then it comes time to talk about what they look like. And verses 4 and 5 doesn't really resonate with us because we're so cultured and sophisticated and we have movies. Um, it's terrifying. <clears throat> Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses they run. Israel didn't use horses. Horses and chariots were the high end of military strength. And anytime they're used in the Bible, it's used as an illustration of military might and power. And so now it's saying, look, this army that is advancing is so great, you can't see the end of them. They are so powerful, they control fire. And when we actually look at the individual soldiers themselves, they look like the strongest creatures that we can conceive of and the highest height of military power. They are Power incarnate. It's with rumbling of chariots, 
(laughs) They leap on the tops of the mountains. Again, artistic statement, but the hills don't get in the way. Terrain is not a problem. If I ever have to get in, you know, kerfuffle of any kind, terrain is a big issue. I'm trip, fall easily. For them, terrain's not a problem. You go right over the mountains. It's no issue at all. Like the crackling flame of fire, devouring stubble, a powerful army drawn up for battle. Oh, no. We thought the locusts were bad. Now this new army is introduced. The army of fire, of cloud, and of darkness. And, well, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it's like when our soldiers go overseas. I mean, in, in, in human terms, today, our soldiers are probably the closest thing to terror incarnate. I mean, drone strikes are it's really shocking. But ours have good intentions. Maybe this army is the same way. Maybe they're going to provide humanitarian help. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I know the sun just got blacked out and there's fire burning everywhere and the land is being consumed. Maybe when they get to us, it'll be for humanitarian helpful reasons. Verse 6. Before them, peoples are in anguish. Well, oh, no. Well, let's scratch that idea. Faces grow pale. Yeah, no joke. I'm sure they do. These warriors charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march on his own way. They don't swerve from their paths. They're completely disciplined. You look at this army. When the army goes to fight, you could maybe hope that it's just one of those that they're all very poor soldiers. They're just hoping to win in massive numbers. But oh no, these actually have discipline. So when they charge, they don't get out of their lines. They don't get out of their rows. They don't get out of their positions. They just consume the terrain. Verse 8, they don't even jostle each other as they go through their destruction. They're not bumping off of each other. They're not getting in each other's way. They are just destroying. They leap upon the city. And oh yeah, all those things that were designed to help, they're running on the walls. It's not even an issue. They're just everywhere. And as if we had any hope before, they climb into the houses and they enter windows like a thief. They're, who are they fighting? The population. This is not a case where they're fighting only other soldiers. They're going in for women and children and non-combatants. They are destroying. That's pretty bad. I mean, I've tried to capture that for us to say, well, that's pretty bad. The problem is, is that's actually not when it starts getting scary. Verse 10 is when they actually start getting scary. Because when they arrive, these creatures that control fire, these ones of cloud and darkness, oh yeah, by the way, they're powerful enough that the earth quakes before them. Um, Either could be because of all their boots, there are so many, it kind of shakes the ground. I suspect it's more the idea of like miraculous, you know, earthquakes happening. The heavens themselves tremble. Oh yeah, by the way, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their sign. Creation itself is terrified of this army. We see this kind of happen like in California with like the, the, the forest fires. You know, when things start happening and then all of the creatures run away before the really super intelligence or humans are like, oh, there maybe is a fire. You know, all of the other lesser animals, are like, they're gone. They figured out how to get away. We're like, oh, 
creation itself here is like, uh, yeah, by the way, we don't want to be in this place. The stars are like, I'm out. I don't want to be here. This army's so bad, the stars are like, I don't, I don't, I'm out. I'm not, I don't, no, see ya. And then verse 11, it all gets worse. <laughs> the Lord utters his voice before the army. And you go, oh no, oh no. Because not only is this army so powerful and devouring and consuming and destructive and bad and, and, and troublesome, not only is creation itself afraid of it, well, now we find out why. And it's because God's army is this army. This is his. It belongs to him. And the weapon they carry with them as they go out is his voice is the front line. And again, remember, this is playing back to, to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, he made the world with his voice. Oh no, this army is unmaking the world with his voice going forward. It's an undoing of Genesis 1 and 2. Everything that was made good, that has fallen and been broken, is being taken away. His camp is great. He who executes his word is powerful. No kidding, God is. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And obviously that's a rhetorical question because we all know the answer. Who can endure it? Well, the way this is structured is to say no one. If this army comes for you, you will lose. Now, obviously, this is not a literal picture. It's me describing the candy It's trying to find the best arrangement of words and illustrations and similes and metaphors to get us to get the picture. And this is Joel doing the same thing, saying, look, the reality is much worse. (laughs) I mean, rotting asparagus and banana, the reality is honestly much, much worse. (laughs) Here you have the army of God consuming and unmaking creation by the power of his voice. And oh yeah, the reality is far, far worse. Who can endure the day of the Lord? The day where God steps into creation. Now the beautiful thing, again, kind of what partially confused the disciples originally on is when they read the the minor prophets here and this day of the Lord theme is talked about regularly uh, there's a number of ways that it's talked about and they got a little bit confused because this day is described as the day that God steps inside creation and God works but it sounds like the end of time and what happens when Jesus shows up and the simple answer is in some sense that the day of the Lord has kind of two parts where uh, in the Gospels, Jesus steps inside time and space. He puts on time and space. He puts on humanity. And who can endure the day of the Lord? Well, interestingly, not Jesus even at some sense. As when he goes on the cross, you realize that's what he's doing. When he goes on to the cross, he takes the entirety of the day of the Lord upon himself so that his people would be able to endure it later. He takes all of the the wrath that this chapter is attempting to capture for us, he takes on himself on the cross. 
all of the the trouble that an army of all of creation that is unmaking creation could possibly bring, he takes on to himself on the cross. So that when he says it's finished, it's not talking about his life. When he says it's finished, it's not talking about his righteousness only. When he says it's finished, it's not just talking about I'm tired of being up here, though I'm sure he certainly was. He's saying, I've satisfied the army of the Lord. There are no troops left. I've paid in full. What do we do with this? I mean, this has been the fun part about thinking about preaching through the book of Joel and particularly this portion of the chapter. What on earth do we do with this? Well, a number of things. One is, I think, I think in the Western church we have, and I'm going to use an illustration, don't get hung up on the illustration. We've fallen for veggie tales, God. And by that I mean, I don't mean veggie tales are bad. But we've fallen in love. We've been captivated by the like overly simple, simpleton kind of nice man idea of God. I mean, the Western American church, I would say so much of it, we've been captured by the idea of God. He's just a nice old man. He's a nice grandpa. He's the grandpa I wish I'd had. And the problem is, is, man alive, you can't read the book of Joel and have that view. The second thing is that when you think of God as the giant grandpa in the sky, and you forget this, it makes your salvation really boring. I mean, again, I use the veggie tales. I love veggie tales. I mean, they're great, whatever. But so much of those stories are really dumb stories about boring things. Because that's what Christianity in America has become. We've forgotten that, you know what it is? It's the story of God stepping inside of time and sending his son to the cross to satisfy the entirety of the armies of God on behalf of a whole bunch of traitors that even after they're redeemed are going to behave like traitors the whole way through until they die. And oh yeah, he'll give his son for that. I wouldn't give my son for that, sorry. I mean, I like y'all and all. Not that much. We've made him a puny God. And the result of it also is that we, it ends up reducing our Christianity to simply, how can I make it through the day? I don't know, honest, just pause for one moment. Right now, in your mind, how big do your problems feel? I'm, I'm going to suggest most of us, they probably feel a lot smaller than they normally do. Why? Because for a change, you're thinking of God as really big. And the bigger that we see our God, the more manageable our problems become because he's huge. Million and a half dollars for a building is nothing. He commands the armies of the Lord, please, 
please. And then lastly, it'll add a humble zeal. Do you realize when we come to this table, this is what the table is. It's a visual representation of the solution to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is God is going to destroy the wicked. The table is, oh yeah, by the way, he did. He destroyed his son. So that we, the wicked, would no longer be wicked. And that we might have fellowship with him. You sit on one side of the table. And figuratively, he sits on the other. In this case, me acting as his representative. You fellowship with him. Because Jesus has satisfied the wrath. May it be that we don't think quite so lightly of our salvation this week. Father in heaven, we thank you for the table that we come to, and we ask your blessing upon it for Christ's sake. Amen.